The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Uh, a very good morning to everyone. You're watching Scorebox and these are your headlines. Asian markets nearing a two-year high after vaccine hopes fuel the S&P 500 to a fresh record whilst Washington and Beijing signal progress on trade talks. The Dow closes above 28,000 amid a major shakeup of its 30-strong index with ExxonMobil, Pfizer and Raytheon technologies being replaced by Salesforce, Amgen and Honeywell. President Trump accepts the Republican Party's presidential nomination whilst taking aim at Democrats, accusing them of trying to, quote, steal the election. We have to be very, very careful. have to be very, very careful. And this time they're trying to do it with the whole post office scam. They'll blame it on the post office. You could see him setting it up. Be very careful and watch it very carefully because we have to win. This is the most important election in the history of our country. Wow. Uh, a man in Hong Kong becomes the first confirmed patient to be reinfected uh, with coronavirus. But experts warn it is too early to draw any conclusions. Just thinking about the history of America, you know, the, uh, uh, the early 1800s, uh, the pre and post Civil War elections, uh, the 1930s. Uh, the, uh, the election after the First World War as well, and the U.S. place in the world, and uh, of course, 1945 and beyond. But this is the most important election of all time. Wow. Uh, U.S. trade officials say Washington and Beijing remain committed to resolving any concerns around the phase one trade deal. This after the U.S. trade representative Robert Lighthizer and Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin held a phone call with the Chinese Vice Premier Li He on Monday. The call had been scheduled for August 15th but was postponed by President Trump amid rising tensions over Beijing's handling of the pandemic. Uh, Asian indices, uh, Apache performance. Remember yesterday, the Hang Seng was uh, fast out of the gates. Um, very strong rally today. It's down six tenths of a percent. Uh, the mainland Shanghai Composite down two tenths. But we do have a very strong upward move on the Nikkei 225, trading 1.7 percent to the good. So uh, the line in my headlines was that markets continue to rally on trade hopes as well. But how credible are those trade hopes, how much progress has been made, do we expect to be made? Why don't we speak to Sam who can update us on the latest. Sam, good morning to you. Good morning to you, Steve. And they're all the big questions. I mean, investors had certainly been awaiting these trade talks, particularly after all those mixed messages we got last week as to whether they'd be on or they'd be off. And so I think this offers, you know, some sort of hope that uh, this at least appears to be one of the few areas that the two sides appear to be engaging in at the moment, despite all their other grievances over things like technology, human rights, etc. So, you know, both sides issued very positive statements today, confirming that uh, trade officials from both sides had spoken over the phone to discuss implementing the phase one trade agreement. The US side saying that it talked about the steps that China had taken under the agreement, Beijing's compliance with this, adding that they both uh, see progress and are committed to seeing uh, this trade deal actually achieve success. Uh, China, meanwhile, had said that they had a constructive conversation on strengthening macroeconomic policy coordination and that the two sides agreed to create 
uh, conditions to continue pushing forward the implementation of this phase one trade agreement. So really, you know, both signalling their commitment there in perhaps wanting to resolve their issues, which of course we know has been around intellectual property theft, forced technology transfers, and of course China just essentially snapping up more goods to the tune of $200 billion over two years. China has certainly been buying more US goods uh, under this agreement, but it is still far behind in its overall target as part of this deal. And I think this is where it gets a little bit confusion and we are getting sort of more mixed messages because, you know, one would have thought that Beijing's failure to live up to its commitment and its its end of the bargain would have further, you know, strained ties, particularly given all these things that the two sides are arguing about at the moment, but still the US side has signaled that it is satisfied with China's efforts uh, so far. And, uh, you know, that was certainly had been giving some hope that this trade deal would, you know, survive this review as and when it happened. Of course, Donald Trump said that he originally called off the originally scheduled talks, uh, saying that he didn't want to talk to China at the mall anymore. But analysts have certainly suggested that perhaps by giving China more time to actually buy more US goods might even and potentially be uh, beneficial for Trump, which, of course, uh, he has made, you know, getting tough on China and this trade deal very much a big part of his campaign in order to get re-elected. But I think it'll be very interesting to see, you know, how much of this we will see, you know, certainly as long as the pressure is on these Chinese companies like Huawei and TikTok. And interestingly, an expert uh, quoted in Chinese state media today did actually point out that this deal could be positive news for Huawei, which we know has been caught in the crosshairs of this broader dispute as the issue there is to do with trade, but we'll have to wait and see. But of course, broadly speaking, the mainland markets have been looking largely positive off the back of this renewed optimism, although we did see the Shanghai Composite uh, dip to the downside into the lunch break. Steve, back to you. Brilliant as ever, Sam. Thank you very much indeed. For, yeah, you've got me thinking really. Um, and just for the open question for the viewers, really, where does President Trump get the most votes? By saying, I am standing up to China uh, and being aggressive against China or by saying I stood up to China and, and I got results. Look at these results, these tangible results. Uh, I'm the only person who can get deals on a global basis or, or is it a combination of the two? Perhaps perhaps he will find the middle ground. But um, anyway, let's move on. TikTok, as uh, mentioned there by Sam, uh, it's filed a lawsuit against the US government claiming it has been denied due process following President Trump's executive order banning transactions between US companies and the video sharing app. In a statement, TikTok also denied accusations that it is a national security threat, but that it remains in talks with Microsoft and Oracle over divesting its North American assets. Speaking to CNBC, the White House trade advisor Peter Navarro denied reports that Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg had raised concerns around TikTok to the administration. What the president is doing is not really about TikTok. It's about TikTok and WeChat and all of these other Chinese software companies that are able to collect data on American citizens, ship it over the Chinese servers, and then share it with the Communist Party and the People's Liberation Army. So, I, you know, I, I, I'm always amazed how some of these stories uh, pop up. Uh, but that one, uh, for me, um, has zero credibility because I know that uh, he had nothing to do with anything that happened here in the White House. Should we have a little chat, just me and you? Should we do that? All right, let's do that. I'm just talking to you now. Yeah, you. Here's the point. Markets went up, yeah? And then journalists have to scribe or, or speak, and they have to say, market went up because of X, or Y, or Z, Z, or three. Could be anyway. So today, I'm looking all over the place, as I do ever, and markets are saying, we went up because of trade hopes. 
Markets are going up because of vaccine hopes, because of fast tracking hopes, because of plasma hopes, because of all that kind of. Markets are going up uh, because of the expectations about FOMC, about Jackson Hole as well. So you've got these three factors that keep coming up, and it's almost kind of like, which one shall I use today? I'll, I'll pick up that one. Markets are going up because uh, of growth stocks, only growth stocks. Well, I'll pick that one up as well. And the fact of the matter is, the market might just be going up because they're going up because actually there is the world's biggest momentum trade going on at the moment as well. Uh, and then the journalists have to uh, fit something in the box as well, because I can guarantee you when we go down tomorrow or we go down whenever we go down next, they'll say, oh, it's because of trade hopes. It's because of concerns about COVID-19. It's because the Fed didn't say the right thing. It's because the growth stocks have come too far as well. So you've got to remember some of the rhetoric, some of the, the line you're getting from, dare I say it, my community, may well just be uh, post-fact rationalization. All right. I'm just telling you how it is as well, because I I think these markets are going up in many ways because they're going up, because actually people want to put their money somewhere, because there is a vast amount of money somewhere. Look at lumber prices. A lumber price is really going up through the roof just because of the demand for lumber. If you believe that naively, then you are absolutely bonkers because there are two things going on here. One being one of the most illiquid commodities traded in the world. And actually some people saying, do you know what? This one's easy to push. We can have a little go on this one. I'm not saying there isn't home building demand. I'm not saying that the home builder sentiment hasn't gone through the roof. I'm saying there's more more than one factor. And you need to remember that as well. All right. OK, let's have a look at the Dow reshuffle. Uh, I'm going to do a little advertisement here. There is a terrific article on CNBC.com. I think it's by Pippa Stevens. And have a look, let's have a look. God, my eyesight. Yeah, Pippa Stevens. It's a great, you will read that article and you will learn something about the Dow and how the Dow is constructed. I guarantee you, unless you're, you, you know it all, which you probably do. You think I do, but I don't. Uh, the fact of the matter is, well, you think I think I do, if you know what I mean. It's really interesting. Loads of interesting facts in there as well. For instance, about Exxon. You know, Exxon's been in the Dow for the yeah, best part of 100 years. It's losing its place now. I think the, the longest serving now, you know, the likes of Chevron. But the fact is, Exxon, it really tells a story. When Exxon goes out and Salesforce goes in, that in itself is a story, isn't it? Cloud in, hydrocarbon out. I don't really need to say much more. Darren Woods' group, of course, looking at what they're doing in the transition, just like everyone else, looking how they attract the ESG, like everyone else as well. But the fact of the matter is, this whole reshuffle is because of, well, because of stock number seven, or I should say stock number 17 now, because the biggest component in the Dow by a country mile has been Apple. And because the difference between the Dow and the S&P is one is about price, about prices going up, uh, and the S&P is about market capitalization. And so when you get this skyrocketing um, share price of Apple and then they have a share split, of course, that takes Apple from the outright number one uh, down to number 17 in terms of market cap. Um, technology, IT, was around about, because of Apple, 27% of the Dow. So then you take out Apple, you, you have the split and it goes down to 17th in terms of its weighting. Uh, then you go down to 20%. But then you put back in Salesforce, you go up to, this is all in the article. It's really good. I, again, I don't, I'm not here to sell CNBC.com, but have a look at that anyway. Uh, Honeywell's in, uh, Raytheon, and Pfizer, look at Pfizer, this is a story in itself. It's, again, Amgen in, Pfizer out as well. And Pfizer, given all the, the news, there's a Pfizer story a week surrounding uh, COVID-19 at the moment, but not enough to keep it in the Dow for now. This is unprecedented, by the way, having three in one go. Uh, and it happens August 31st. All right? Okay, there you go. Coming up on the show, Republicans warn of a cultural revolution if Joe Biden is elected as President Trump is nominated for a second term. Uh, well, by the Republicans, at least. Anyway, more after the break on this. I'm 
Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on cnbc.com. Welcome back. Republicans defended President Trump's response to the coronavirus on the first night of the GOP's national convention after formally nominating the U.S. leader for a second term in the White House. Speakers uh, hit out at Joe Biden throughout, branding the Democrats as radicals and warning of a socialist America if the former vice president was elected. Speaking to delegates from North Carolina, President Trump claimed without evidence that Democrats are, quote, trying to steal the election as he credited himself with building a strong economy prior to the pandemic. Our country is counting on it. This is the biggest. This is it. Our country can go in a horrible, horrible direction or in an even greater direction. And before the plague came in from China, that's where we were going. We were going in a direction like we had never seen. The most successful economy in the history of our country. The best unemployment numbers in history for African-American, Asian-American, Hispanic-American, women, college students, bad students, good students, everybody. <laughs> Uh, the president's son, Donald Trump Jr., attacked Joe Biden's foreign policy credentials, warning it will damage America. Joe Biden's entire economic platform seems designed to crush the working man and woman. He supported the worst trade deals in the history of the planet. He voted for the NAFTA nightmare. Down the tubes went our auto industry. He pushed for TPP. Goodbye, manufacturing jobs. Beijing Biden is so weak on China that the intelligence community recently assessed that the Chinese Communist Party favors Biden. They know he'll weaken us both economically and on a world stage. Former ambassador to the UN, uh, Nikki Haley, also addressed the president's work on the international stage whilst acknowledging racial tensions in the US. With his leadership, we did what Barack Obama and Joe Biden refused to do. We stood up for America and we stood against our enemies. America is a story that's a work in progress. Now is the time to build on that progress and make America even freer, fairer, and better for everyone. That's why it's so tragic to see so much of the Democratic Party turning a blind eye towards riots and rage. The American people know we can do better. And of course we value and respect every black life. Uh, Greg Swenson is political commentator of Republicans overseas. Greg, very good to speak to you today. Look, your second bullet point, you've only got three, and one of them is focus on policy. Focus, and that's what I think all Americans deep down want to see, that what the policy differences are going to be between a Biden and a Trump administration. So why does the president, instead of focusing on policy, continue to criticise the institutions that have done nothing wrong, the Postal Service, the FOMC, uh, criticising the FDA now, saying they're holding up approvals for political reasons as well? Wouldn't you like the president just to focus on those issues that you mentioned? Well, I, and I think you'll have that chance. And I'm, I'm pleased to see that 
the president is talking about the the policies work as opposed to the where you saw a lot of personality of empathy Joe Biden and I and and I from the others not from the president who likes to count likes to talk about people who criticize but I think the other in the RNC saw last Greg Greg, I'm going to have to come in. There's something wrong with your line now. Um, I was hoping that uh, I really want to hear what you got to say. Can we try and come back to you? Can we try and get that worked out, technical people? All right, we'll do that. Greg, I'm uh, ever so sorry, actually, because I'm desperate to speak to you and get your view on uh, what is going on at the moment. Um, we will come back to you. Uh, a CNBC poll of 20 analysts have overwhelmingly predicted Democrat candidate Joe Biden will beat President Trump in the coming November US election. Eight of the respondents think the S&P will decline by 5% in the month after the election, whilst two foresee a 10% downturn. Well, we'll get back to uh, Tanvir in a few moments' time, who um, conducted that survey as well. So let's take a look at the US futures. And a quite extraordinary rally goes on and on and on at the moment as well. I mentioned to you what the scribes, the journalists, uh, are, are saying uh, the rationale behind this. COVID hopes, uh, trade hopes, um, hopes for uh, a rapprochement, uh, Trans-Pacific as well. Um, but a lot of things going on in these markets as well. I mean, some stunning moves. Did you know the Nasdaq is now up 27% year to date? 27% higher than pre-COVID. So US Postmaster General Louis DeJoy appeared on Capitol Hill for a second day of testimony as Democrats grilled him on recent cutbacks at the post office. NBC's Jeff Bennett has more. Postmaster General Louis DeJoy on defense today, facing scathing criticism over delays, argued the Postal Service is up to the task of handling election mail. The Postal Service is fully capable and committed to delivering the nation's ballots securely and on time. In his two months on the job, DeJoy has overseen a series of recent policy changes blamed for severe service slowdowns. He said he will not replace mail sorting machines removed on his watch. How can one person screw this up in just a few weeks? Will you put the, will you put the high outrageous. speed machines no, back? No, I will not. DeJoy acknowledged a dip in mail service, but disputed reports of widespread delivery problems. But House Democrats released internal Postal Service documents showing steep declines and delays in a range of mail service starting in early July, shortly after DeJoy took over. We started seeing delays more heavily um, within the past, like, four weeks. Carmen Rad runs a digital sign printing company in Los Angeles. When the pandemic hit, yard signs became big business, but her daily pickups were delayed. First, they didn't come one day. Then the following week, they didn't come two days. Rad says she's lost roughly $7,000 when the signs didn't arrive. This is wrong. If small business is the backbone of America, why are you hurting us? And when asked today, the postmaster general didn't know the price to mail a postcard or how many people voted by mail in the last presidential election. OK, let's take a look at the oil price as well. Um, very interesting. Energy yesterday um, did something it has, doesn't do very often. It was <laughs> the leading sector, uh, subsector of the uh, S&P 500. It was up 2.75% yesterday. First positive day in six. First positive day in six. Um, best day since August the 10th as well. Right, twin tropical storms are heading to the US's Gulf Coast, raising concern about handling evacuations safely amid the pandemic. NBC's Chris Pallone filed this report from Louisiana. For a region that's used to dealing with hurricanes, this is still a rarity. 
not one, but two potential tropical systems hitting the region within the span of a couple of days of each other. Now, it's been a beautiful day here in Lafayette, Louisiana. Marco made landfall a little after six o'clock central time near the Mississippi River, but it has greatly weakened. And don't be mistaken, all eyes across the Gulf Coast are watching Laura coming behind it, possibly Wednesday into Thursday. Governors across the area are urging people in low-lying areas to evacuate if they can, because there is not going to be as much space in shelters because of COVID-19. Places that are opening shelters have to keep people socially distanced, and so that means there's going to be a lot less room for people. For folks getting prepared in the area, Alabama, Louisiana, Texas, they're buying food, they're buying water, they're loading up their cars with gas, they're loading up sandbags in anticipation of Laura, which could strike this region as a category two or a category three hurricane. Again, governors urging people to get out if they can in the low-lying areas. There are a few mandatory evacuations in Louisiana, but not widespread just yet as we continue to watch the track of Laura as it approaches the Gulf Coast. In Lafayette, Louisiana, I'm Chris Pallone. Now back to you. Uh, let's get back to Greg Swenson, political commentator, Republicans overseas. Greg, apologies. I don't know what happened there, but we got you on the phone. That's the main thing. So That's I said great. to you, why can't the president concentrate on policies? And you said... Well, he, he likes to counterpunch. And so I think you'll see a lot more policy in the, in the next few days at the RNC. But I think, you know, when he's, not in, when he's not doing a scripted speech, like you saw over the weekend, you know, he tends to do this counterpunching and he tends to, to get in little spats with people. And that's, you know, that's sort of his unfiltered nature. It's one of the reasons he was elected in 2016. But it's disruptive. And I think what you'll see in the... As, as opposed to the to the convention where you'll see a lot more deliberate focus on policy and much more scripted speeches. And, and you saw that a little bit last night. I think you'll see it the next few days. And, and it's what you didn't see in the DNC. And I think that's important to highlight. It's, you know, last week was, was all about personality and Joe Biden's great and his, his empathy and his personality. And that's all nice. But what they tried to you know overlook was the policies, the progressive left policies uh, of the party. So I think you'll see a lot about policy this week, at least I hope so. And you hit upon a very important point that he is a master communicator in many ways, whether it's on social media or whether it's in person as well. And of course, we, we know this, that the DNC has its concerns about Mr. Biden versus Mr. Trump when it comes to that personality and that dynamism in front of the microphone and indeed on social media. But that said, do you not think that um, the president is already going for the man, not the ball, so to speak, as we would say on this side of the world in sport, i.e. he's attacking the man again very aggressively, going about his uh, cognitive abilities uh, and really being aggressive about Mr. Biden rather than going for Mr. Biden's policies, which I think a lot of serious Americans want to see uh, a critical analysis of both sides' policies? Well, Steve, I think you bring up a good point. And, I, and again, I think you'll see that in the convention this week. It won't just be the, the schoolyard brawl, which the, the president likes. And I, and I, I grant that, that he likes getting these fights and, and he, you know, name calls and he gives everybody a nickname. I get that. It happened in 2016 and it worked for him. But I do think he'll spend plenty of time on policy. I think he needs to, to actually message what the Democrats are going to do, not just the personality differences. And, and I think, you know, it's distasteful sometimes, it's disruptive, but I do think that he will highlight the, the policy agenda 
of the progressive left. And I think that the other speakers at the convention have already started to do that. You saw that last night. And I think they'll continue to. So I, I think it's important that they do that. I think it's important. That it's not just personality and empathy, but it's what are we going to actually do? And, you know, what's the opportunity agenda? And I think, you know, you saw a little bit of that last night. You'll see it the next few nights as well. Greg, um, there was a time when the president promised to be radical, um, to drain the swamp. That's pretty radical, saying you're going to completely uh, create an upheaval of the political establishment. But now he's part of the establishment and he's saying that radical is bad rather than his brand uh, of radicalism as well. It's a very interesting segue, isn't it, from the person who was going to shake everything up by being radical to the man who's now accusing the opposition of being radical. Well, it, it's a fine line, and I think it just depends, you know, what flavor your radical is. And so, you know, the president has, you know, he definitely is, uh, tends to shake things up. He tends to be disruptive, but I also think he's got to paint a picture, and you saw that last night with some of the other speakers as well, paint a picture of the other side and what a Biden administration would look like. It would look a lot like a blue state, and you're seeing a, a pretty dramatic difference in red states and blue states now, not only in the, in the way that the Democratic governors and mayors have treated the violence and the riots in the street, but also in the pandemic, you know, what, how, how the lockdowns have been extended in the, in the blue states without necessarily producing better results, but also, you know, having uh, producing higher unemployment rate, rates and less economic growth. So I think, you know, they, they will paint that picture. I think they, they will focus on policies and what a Democratic administration or a Biden administration would look like in terms of policy. And you'll see some counterpunching. You'll see some personality talk. I, I'm not suggesting that the president's immune to that. But but yeah, it's it's a, it's two different kinds of radical. He, he was was and is a disruptive president. And he, he definitely wants to drain the swamp and continue to do that. And, and he's he's done that to a certain degree. But uh, I think you'll see that the, the other side is radical and disruptive, but in a different way and in a much more progressive left way than than the president would advocate. And then you're assuming, and, and this is a really important issue, I suppose, that the, 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 those floating voters, that 10 to 15 percent of Americans in certain states who will dictate, let's face it, this election come November 3rd, you're assuming that there is an issue there uh, with Kamala Harris, aren't you? Because even you in your notes, Greg, are saying define Vice President Biden. I, I think that Republicans think there's a weakness by putting pressure uh, on the, the, the pairing and saying Kamala Harris is actually the real force or will be going forward as well. Is there a weakness there? from the uh, Democrat point of view? Well, it, it, you know, even the, even Vice President Biden has suggested or at least hinted that he could potentially be a one-term president. Uh, so I think it, it, it's just reality to assume that, that there's a, a higher likelihood, given the vice president's age, that his vice president will, you know, have a much higher chance of becoming president. It's not guaranteed. And, and Senator Harris is, is much more to the progressive left, or at least has stated that in her in her conversations i thought i also thought she was you know a, a little bit aggressive to say the least in her acceptance speech and uh and even when when she was in, uh, officially nominated by uh by vice president biden you know in talking about how the you know the president has crushed the economy and also mishandled the the corona crisis which i find you know difficult to 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 agree with in the sense that you can't blame him for the economy that's caused by the very lockdowns that you insist should continue. So, you know, there, there's some inconsistencies there, but I think what the, the RNC this week has to, to explain is that um, 
the Senator Harris's policies are e- even more to the progressive left than Vice President Biden's. And, and you can see it in her record in the Senate. She's actually on record as the most uh, liberal senator in, in, the, in the current Senate. So, you know, that's something that I think that the RNC will have to, to be clear about and, and demonstrate. Hang on, Greg. You said you have a problem with Senator Harris being aggressive. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a ring here. You know, the president's pretty aggressive as we, when we came in against the Democrats. You have a problem with Kamala Harris being aggressive back? Well, it depends what the policies are, and I and I do have I do have a problem with being aggressive when you know when she demonstrates this absolute untruths in her in her acceptance speech. So, yeah, if if you're telling something. That's true, and you just have a different opinion or a different policy. That's one thing, but I think what what she's done is has been uh, aggressive to the point where you know she's she's just dishonest in in her communication. So so look, I think you know we're all used to disruptive, and we're we're all used to aggressive. That's one of the things that the president um, is quite unique about. But um, I think you'll see a lot of this, and, and you'll you'll understand the progressive left policies of of this uh, of the vice president and senator harris the more that she speaks the more the vice president comes up from the basement and speaks so look i I think you know you'll see a lot of this exposed at the rnc this week i think that's that's good but i think you'll also see vice president biden and senator harris speaking a lot more and that's probably to the benefit of the the republican ticket sorry we've run out of time but i'm gonna ask you one more time you said she's aggressive now you're saying she's dishonest who do you think would uh, bear up to the better fact checking what the president has said about a whole host of issues or Kamala Harris. Well, oh, I think the president would. You know, look, the, the president's guilty of using hyperbole. You know, I mean, his, his use of the term "great," for example. You know, it's hard to define that. But I think with with Senator Harris, you could see it in in, in her first speech when she was when she was um, essentially nominated by Vice President Biden or, or selected by Biden. You, you could see it in the speech. I mean, it was completely dishonest to to suggest. That on um, two or three occasions, and I think, you know, if you look at what she says, and it's inconsistent with the the policies that you would want as an American, I think that will be highlighted. Uh, Steve, you mentioned the, the swing voters. I'm not sure there's a lot of persuadable people in the states right now. There's a couple of small demographics, maybe Hispanic men, that are persuadable, but for the most part, people have made up their minds. So this becomes a turnout election, and I think, um, you know, the, the the enthusiasm gap. Between and you saw last week in the DNC, the the the, the majority of voters that are or that are indicating that they'll vote for Biden and Harris are voting for them because they don't like the president. Whereas the president's voters, seventy five percent of the president's voters, are voting for him because they support him and the policies of the Republican Party. So, you know, there is this enthusiasm gap. I'm not sure anybody's really persuadable. So I could I could talk about Senator Harris and how she was misleading in her comments, but that's not really going to persuade anybody. I think the real issue is the enthusiasm gap and it's if people turn out to vote. So it really becomes a turnout election. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.